Hey folks, you know how we do on No Pixel Dark Podcast. We have the heavy hitters. I'm so excited for the person that's coming on. I've known this guy way, wow, 20, 30 years back. And he's been doing great things back then. And now he's even doing better things. So next voice you hear with Mr. Luke Cooper. I've known him. He's big time in Baltimore. Be across the world. He's doing so many amazing things out on the ecosystem for techs and more. The next voice you hear is Mr. Luke Cooper. We made a pledge to do what's best for the health of our communities, and we continue to deliver on it every day for every one of our members. With access to a network of over 1 million providers, rewards for living healthy, and more care options than ever, we are Care First Blue Cross Blue Shield, and we are changing healthcare for all that we serve. At Care First, it's not just our name, it's our promise. Welcome to the No Picks After Dark Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. I told you folks, we got the heavy hitters on. All right, Mr. Luke Cooper, how are you, sir? I'm great. I'm great. Good to be here. We've, we've been trying to make this happen for a while, man. Yeah. I'm so happy we finally made this happen. For real. This for has real. been, a, I mean, I've known you since 1999. Syracuse University. Syracuse. Cold ass. Syracuse. <laughs> it was cold. Always. Brother, Always. it was cold. But, hey, listen, we have very few days off, though. We never had days off. We never had. You know the kids up there have snow days now. They, they That's actually, crazy. That's a millennial stuff. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, yeah. They, they made sure we go yeah, to school. 100%. But, I mean, you were doing your thing back in the day, man. You were in law school. You were busting those books. I was coming in having a good time. <laughs> but, you know, you were, again, you were one of those people that we all knew who you were. You were always serious about your craft growing in college. I always knew that. I always respected what you were doing. Um, you were a proud member of a big-time fraternity, Mega Sci-Fi. And you guys were Shout definitely... You guys were definitely uh, very looked upon... Uh, one of the guys that you were around, maybe Sean Marshall. Sean, I and him and I went day. to high school at different <laughs> times, but Sean Marshall. So yep. we know a lot of great people out there. But I'm happy you're on Me because too. you were doing so many great things. And I admire from afar. And I'm like, yeah, I love this black brother doing something because it's inspiring and representation matters. Absolutely. So thank you. So let's tell people a little bit about you. Where are you from originally? Give us a little bit of your background. Go from there. And what yeah, the, the company you own going on right now. Yeah, so for first and foremost, thanks for having me on, man. I think these kinds of platforms are so important because, um, you know, th there are multiple ways that these narratives need to be told. It's just not one way, not one conduit, not one kind of platform. And you offer the kind of platform that I think is important for, you know, these kinds of stories to not only get exposed, but get exposed in a way that's approachable, right, uh, and relatable. Um, where am I from? I'm from poverty. Right. I grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut in the 80s. I'm an 80s baby. Right. I grew up in Paquanics projects where there was no hope. You know, all my uncles, cousins, uh, friends either wound up dead or in, uh, on drugs. Uh, my father couldn't avoid it. He did 20 years altogether. His last sentence was 20 years. He did, tw he did 12 of the 20. Um, you know, but but, you know, those things shaped me in positive ways, too. Right. It, it, it forced me to confront. Um, you know, the hardest issues with a level of authenticity and, and ferocity, right? Because to be successful, you've got to like be ferocious. You got to be a beast. And, um, and, you know, I had to become that, right? And so as a kid growing up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, you're constantly looking, you know, I remember growing up and looking around on the ground, you know, in the summers when there was nothing to do for like money, right? Because I was just so broke, so poor. So your, your mind gets trained, right? I didn't even realize that my mind subconsciously was getting trained to be looking for opportunity constantly, mm. right? Which is what made me a, a good founder, good investor, 
you know, good entrepreneur, operator, all those things as well. But I was constantly being trained, <coughs> constantly being trained and challenged, right, to, to, to always monitor my six, right? Because growing up in Bridgeport, you know, you got gangs, you got, you know, you, sometimes you got people in your own family trying to get you, right? Like mm-hmm. my first cousin got shot in the head, killed by my other first cousin, right? That was only less than 10 years ago, right? Mm. So, so like you're constantly monitoring the, the, the environment around you in a way that causes you to be thoughtful, right? And I think that's also critical to being a good investor, operator, all those things. Um, but I was, I was fortunate. I was fortunate to have a great mom that wanted me to see a different world. And, um, you know, three things really shaped my narrative arc as a kid. I was 12 years old. Um, my father went away to prison for 20 years. He got a 20 year sentence. Um, my mom, you know, wanted us to see better, more of the world. So she went over to Sikorsky Air, airfield, which is, you know, 15, 20 minutes away from Bridgeport. And she begged this pilot. She was just like, hey, you know, my kids have never seen, you know, the sky. You know, I have two kids. They've never gone anywhere. We live right there in Paquantic's Projects because it was only 15 minutes away. You could see the projects. Mm. And uh, and so those towers, they felt, you know, ominous, right? Un- unconquerable, right? Mm. They felt like this is where you at and you can't go nowhere else. Mm. And, you know, my mom just wanted me and my sister to see something different. And, you know, this pilot found it in his heart. He was like, listen, we don't do that program anymore where we take people up in the sky, but I'm going to do that for you guys. So mm. just show up next week at five o'clock in the morning, four o'clock, some crazy time. Mm. And, and here we go. You know what I mean? And up in the air we go, we flying off. And I, and I see for the first time my project dwelling, you know, I see Paquanix projects and I'm like, oh, that's Paquanix. I'd never seen that. Ooh. You got it is 1980. Like we got right. drones and stuff now. Right, right. We see we see stuff from every angle, right? right? We got cameras everywhere. We can see everything. There wasn't it wasn't like that in the 80s. We had Randy right? McNally. That's what we had. Exactly. Apparently, Randy McNally map. That was it. That's right. That was <laughs> That's it. Right. That's right. That was it. That was it. Yeah, we had MapQuest. Yes, right? MapQuest. Exactly. And and I think what it limited you from seeing back then, because like we, I think right now we're in an age of social media, podcasting, everything else. You know, you have a thousand different angles and ways that you can see everything in the world, right? right. Including yourself, right? But back then, you, you you couldn't see the world, but most importantly, you couldn't see yourself. You couldn't see your place in this big world. And I think that flight, you know, really tra- transitioned me as a kid because it allowed me to see my place in the world and like how small, you know, how literally how small those project dwelling dwellings were. For me, it unlocked me. It unlocked where I was from like who I was, mm. right? And so, and so that was the second thing that happened. And lastly, I, I did this program called Nifty Network for Teaching Teaching Entrepreneurship, and I was fortunate to you know um, get into the program and build solar powered microwaves. I learned how to do that, you know, and it was like, oh well, you can make money doing that. So I, you know, put together these boxes and, you know, aluminum foil, plexiglass, all the stuff that's required to, to pull this off. <laughs> and I sold hot dogs in them and I made money selling the hot dogs. And I was like, oh, OK, now I can use my mind and I have this big vision and I'm disconnected from this 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 poverty mentality. Right. Mm-hmm. That 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 means that I can do more. Right. right. And so I was very lucky to, to have those experiences. I went off and, you know, to a prep school in Connecticut. Uh, where I played basketball. So I got to see two worlds every day. I went to Trumbull, Connecticut, which is about 15 miles in the other direction from from Bridgeport. And I played basketball for a Hall of Fame coach, and it was amazing. And I went to school with these white kids that had every conceivable 
advantage you could think about. Mm-hmm. But they still had problems. Right, <laughs> right. They still had challenges. We right? all they, do. Absolutely, right? And so, again, it, it created a shared sense of consciousness in me around, like, you know, that, like, yeah, black, 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 you know, f- failure, poverty, you know, sadness, all those suffering is a real thing, right? But human suffering, right, is also a, a, a real thing. And we all face challenges in life. And so, uh, you know, and I think that's a that's a thing that I've kept with me my, my, my entire journey. Mm. Um, you know, but was fortunate to, 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 you know, take that advantage and use that to my to my advantage, the skills that I got at St. Joe's, shout out, you know, St. Joe's in Trumbull, Connecticut. Um, to get a basketball scholarship and ultimately go to college, play basketball at Adelphi University in Long Island. Um, you know, lived in the city for a bit, um, but you know, mostly I was an athlete. I was a college athlete, and I was a college athlete that was hiding the fact that he had a father in prison mm. the whole time, right? And so when I was when I was in college, I you know worked really hard, you know, academically worked really hard on the court. But I was mostly to myself. I, I pledged Omega Sci Fi, mm-hmm. and that was my 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 nuclear family. That right. that became my family, and even but even most of the bros didn't know that I had a father in prison, and that I was like on on you know breaks, winter breaks, and things like that. I would go see him in prison. Mm. You know, I remember you know my junior year, me and my sister actually you know went and like stayed overnight with my father in prison. Because wow. by then he could have like what we're called conjugal visits. Right. Like most people think conjugal visits is just right, like you, you right. getting it on, right? Right, right. Like sometimes it's that, right? But, right. But it also just means family, right? Right. And so we stayed, you know, we walked into the prison, you know, you hear those big, you know, uh, doors. doors slam behind you and you know it's real. You know mm. it's real. And, um, you know, off to the, you know, side, there's a whole section for the families or whatever. And I just remember staying, you know, two nights, you know, together with my father. And it was, it was surreal. It was surreal, right? Mm. And so, um, you know, but that that was my experience. It was hard to hard to convey all that to people because I didn't know how to think about my own self and my own existence and what I could do, where I could go relative to all those things that, you know, were out of my control. I didn't choose, you know, to have a father who was on heroin right. and suffer from all those things. But, you know, it was tough in the 80s for black people. Just imagine how tough it was in the 60s and 70s, right? right, right. There were no resources. And no. so I, I had to come to a place of forgive, forgiveness to my father as well, which I have. You know, he's since died and and and, um, and, and gone on. But, um, you know, I was again, I was just fortunate for all those experiences. I used that to get to law school. Um, went straight away into law school. I was 21. That's where I met you. Yep, yep. Yeah, I was a I was a wild 21 year old. Hey, we ain't gonna talk about those. And yeah, we didn't yeah. we didn't have camera phones yeah, exactly. back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Cut the camera. Cut the <laughs> we didn't have that back in yeah, the day. Yeah, exactly. For real, for yeah, real. Thank God there was no YouTube back in the day. For Ooh. real. <laughs> but no, I mean, just everything you're saying that is just love hearing that story. And I'm sure the people listening and watching love to hear that you just was like, you know, I'm determined. Hundred percent. And just seeing that above change your whole perspective of life and your mom really pushing for you to become better and better what you're at so i really enjoy you you telling that story that's really impactful when when you got out you were in law school mm-hmm. did you always want to be a lawyer is that something she wanted to do is like is that or did you want to be an entrepreneur like how like yeah. what was the thing i mean i think i think as black people growing up in in violent systems and systematic poverty, all the things, right? That that is true of Baltimore, is true of Bridgeport, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you, you don't have exposure to a lot of industry, right? You, you don't. don't. You can't get a job, 
You know what I mean? Because a lot of us get criminal record or something else, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or just like don't have access or don't even know, you know, how to how to access the resource, right? Right. And so what? But what you do have a lot of access and proximity to is the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. and you also know how the criminal justice system doesn't work for us or works, you know, usually to our disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And so I I grew up like with that close to me, right? Because I when I was twelve, you know, my father he was you know, high and doing drugs in the house and all that kind of stuff. Got into conflict with my mom and that's what landed him in prison mm-hmm. for that third strike. It was the three strikes law. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. And so that was his third strike and he got a 20-year sentence. Mm. Right? And so I had to testify in that trial as a 12-year-old boy. Mm. Right? Um, and the and the, and the the lawyer, uh, Stephen Sedensky, I'm still in touch with him today. Wow. Um, you know, it, it was in the newspaper. Uh, he had to prosecute my father's brother, my uncle, right, who had gotten murdered the year before mm. and he had to prosecute the guy who killed my father's brother mm. and so we had to get conflicts waivers and all this kind of stuff and all that. so i did my first exposure to the practice of law and i was like wow okay I, what if i want to use this to somehow change my life right and change the lives of others right mm. that was kind of the way i thought about law initially and then bruh i saw this book right this book called why should white guys have all the fun Okay. By Reginald Lewis. Yes, this Reginald dude, Lewis. This, cat, yes. this cool cat from Baltimore. Yes. Right? And I was, and I was like, and I read his story, and I was like, that's my story a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't have as much family conflict, but he had challenges, right? He right. grew up in, in West Baltimore, you know, over north by North Avenue, all that, right? So like he, he grew up in the in the in the stuff, right? And to make it out of that and to, to become what he can't became, you know, as a as a as a lawyer initially to be, then become a deal maker, I was like, that's the kind of lawyer I want to become. Right, right. right. So knowing that I wanted to become a, a lawyer of that variety, you know, I, I focused at Syracuse on like securities. I focused on M and A. I focused on corporate mostly. Okay. Um, but and then I went back to school. Ultimately, got an MBA at Babson because I really wanted to go deep. Hmm. But you know, that was really my introduction into into law, right? When I got to Baltimore, I, I got here as a, I was a practicing lawyer. I'm still a lawyer today, but I don't practice. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I got here, I was a practicing lawyer. I worked at, you know, in-house counsel at State Farm. And, you know, again, like exposure to these big companies, DLA Piper, uh, mm-hmm. it was just it was just showing me like more stuff. Right. Right. And I think I think as black people. You know, it's important for us to get connectivity to these adjacent fields so we can just see more of what is in us and how that can be activated in these other fields to drive, you know, important outcomes, change, social change, all the good things that, you know, I know are available to us when our talent meets opportunity. I love that. So Lee, we're going to hold that note. We right back. So we're going to talk about his entrepreneurial journey and how he's making waves out here. I see this guy everywhere. He went South, South France. He, he's <laughs> hanging out with the Hoopers, you know, he, he, he's out there. And please just tell us a little bit about that journey. Right back to these messages. When you give to United Way, your gift could be the first spark of something bigger. It can help someone find, interview for, and get hired for a job and provide follow-up services for success. It can break down educational barriers and give that extra help to a struggling student with in-school support programs. Give today. Spark something bigger. 
Are you or someone you love in need of mental health support? For All Seasons is now offering same-day therapy appointments with no wait list. Through the For All Seasons open access program, you can walk in for mental health services and begin therapy in the same visit. For All Seasons accepts all insurances and provides financial assistance if you need it. For therapy, psychiatry, or victim support, we have appointments available today. Call For All Seasons, 410-822-1018. And folks, we are back with Mr. Luke Cooper telling us the story. Thank you for your time. I always tell people we can't get time back. And thank you for explaining to our audience a little bit about you, your background and whatnot. So we really appreciate that. Let's talk about your entrepreneurial, man. You're doing so many things out here. You learned, you told you, you laid the map out in the beginning. How you got put in certain places. You're looking at seeing things. You're understanding. And that's what I tell a lot of guys who I work with podcasting. Feel uncomfortable. You got to feel uncomfortable going in that room. You got to understand why you feel comfortable because maybe you may not know, but you need to learn why you don't know and how you could be in that room to get better. Entrepreneurial, you're doing the tech system, ecosystem, your show. Tell us what's going on. Tell us how all this happened. Yeah, yeah. So right, right now I'm an investor. Uh, and my job, you know, as an investor is to find the best and brightest, uh, you know, young men and women out there that are building some of the bravest technologies for the modern enterprise, right? I, why enterprise? Because it's a segment I know, right? I, mm -hmm. I've, I've, been, I've built two companies that were enterprise tech businesses that I sold to Fortune 300s. Mm. And, you know, I want to see that same opportunity outcome for other diverse entrepreneurs that are struggling, that don't have, you know, the resources or the networks to get to the promised land, right? And I've been through the promised land as an M&A lawyer, mm. as a two-time founder. And so really what I'm doing today is like deploying capital to them, but also helping them, you know, find the way and guide them toward, you know, good, good, you know, really strong outcomes. Um, you know, predominantly investing at the Series A level, right? Series A is, you know, is a later stage in early stage investing when you have, you know, over a million dollars of annual recurring revenue and mm. you got a real business and that's <laughs> generating some, some, that's where I can be most helpful, okay. right? And so that's where I spend my time today. Um, you know, in addition to that, I'm also uh, the Distinguished Presidential Scholar at University of Maryland, Baltimore, where I serve as essentially an advisor to the president um, on a bunch of matters, right? The, the chief thing that we're doing there is really around, you know, sort of enabling more small businesses to access the university's procurement by making it more fair, right? Like you think about Balt a city like Baltimore, <laughs> it has so many resources, so many gems that are just completely misused, Hopkins, misapplied. all these places. Hopkins, UMB. I mean, we just have so many, you know, resources at our disposal that we don't always, you know, sort of think about in a tactical, creative way, right? right. A, lot, a lot of things in this city, you know, oftentimes are extractive. These organizations, they take from the community, mm -hmm. right? And even when they give to the community, you got all these great organizations. Care First is another one, right? You got a lot of great organizations, but when they do things, a lot of times they do things with the expectation of getting back like love from the community, right? Mm -hmm. And that love from the community comes at a very expensive price, right? Because the dollars that you give us, right, in exchange for the 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 the, the millions of dollars in community love that we give back, mm -hmm. right, are just completely asymmetrical. I agree. Right, they're asymmetrical, and that and and so I think a lot of what I'm doing is investing, but I, I that's the not the part I get excited about. The part I get excited about is really creating wealth outcomes for these founders that then can transform their own communities. Like, what would Baltimore look like if you had four or five other black, you know, super high high powered successful tech entrepreneurs that with fifty million dollars, a hundred million dollars, with twenty million dollars, right? Mm. Like, Baltimore's gonna look different. 
And so a lot of what I'm doing is, is really around enabling more of that. I also have Latimer House, which is you know, for earlier stage entrepreneurs, because I want to create pipeline, right? right. I, want, I want even because most of us are not at a stage where we, you know, can can take an institutional check of two million dollars, right? <laughs> we can't do that. We're gonna lose the money. And where's and where, but here's the other question: Where are people like me and yourself, black and brown, getting that money from? Most of us are, yeah. <laughs> we're, I mean, I mean, I'm just throwing it out there. Most we just don't do have it. that. That's it. We don't have it. Unless you know somebody, know somebody 100%. who has that capital. 100%. And then you're jumping through a bunch of a bunch of hoops to even get that. Right. Right. And so, like, you know, I, I exist in some ways to help guide black people. Because I, I had to do it, right? And so, like, my journey as an entrepreneur really started um, in 2007 or so. Okay. You know, I was, I, was, I was mostly done with the practice of law. I didn't really want to, you know, keep being a lawyer. I remember this really bad conversation I had with one of the lawyers I was with. And like he, you know, he was trying to clown me because he said I was using the word a word in, incorrectly. I was telling, oh, trying geez. to explain to him how these two issues were discreet, right? Mm -hmm. When I did Syracuse's commencement speech this past year, I talked about this on the I commencement love it. speech. Right? I love it. And and when I when I talked to this lawyer, he was like, oh, I was explaining to him like these issues are discreet, they're separate, right? right. And he's like, oh, you're using that word incorrectly. And he, you know, he pulled out a dictionary on me. No, <laughs> no. In the middle of the conversation, in his con no. in his his office, he turns around and grabs a dictionary. Old white dude. Wow. Uh, and and I'm just like, and he, you know, obviously he was clearly wrong. It was D I S C R E T E, right? You know, right. Fourteen hundred on my SATs. You know what I mean? So I was like, <laughs> hopefully you know what that is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. In any event, like he, you know, we're having this conversation and I'm just like, this is, this is not the environment for me, right? I need to be in an environment where my creativity, you know, my, you know, who I am as a person, how I show up is, is like fully, you know, acceptable. And, and I, I have more control over, you know, the kinds of interactions that I, I, I want to have with my employees, other employees, the community, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I was fortunate to meet this uh, couple, you know, um, in my community, black couple that were out in Bowie trying to build this cybersecurity company. They they had a lot of the pieces, but they were missing some of the critical pieces that got them that would have gotten them to the successful outcome they wanted, right? Because mm -hmm. ultimately they wanted to, to to build a business and sell it, right? right. They understood that journey. Um, and I, so I jumped in as a sort of, you know, third co-founder uh, and just like started helping, right? With everything, building all the critical systems. I didn't even know how to do most of this stuff, right? And I tell people all the time, it's okay that you don't know how to do a thing, just do it. Just do it because you learn by doing it. Mm. And then by doing it, what happens is by you doing a thing, there's other people watching you do that thing. And then they come over to you and say, oh, let me tell you that I did this thing too um, last week and it looked this way. And that's just information right? that will then help you do the thing better. Right. right. And so just by doing it, you're going to learn and attract the resources that you need. And so we just did the thing. We just mm. jumped in and did the thing. We couldn't raise no money. Um it was super hard, right, uh, to, to just get the traction that we needed. And all along the way, we were thinking about the end in, end in mind. We were mm. building it with the end in mind. And so I was constantly engaging a group of buyers and potential customers that would, you know, you know, eventually, you know, pay us a lot of money for the systems that we created and the revenue that we created. Right. And so ultimately, it worked, right? I, I developed two or three great relationships that led to, you know, three or four conversations that lasted over the course of eight months. One resulted in an M&A discussion. Um, I did the deal myself. You know, I, I found that buyer. We worked through a transaction. We did a two-part deal where they bought majority of the company for about four million bucks. And then the rest was completely sold in a consolidated entity uh, to CACI, uh, C-A-C-I, you know, their $15 billion 
publicly traded company um, for about 55 million, mm. right? And it was my first like half a million or so that I made as a <laughs> as an entrepreneur. And I was like, wow, this is powerful, mm-hmm. right? These are the wealth outcomes that can be translated from corporate business, small business, you know, tech success, right? And and so I I, I said okay I want to do more of this right <laughs> I, do I more mean of this. yeah you yeah. like that paycheck you like totally let's do this exactly but you know I think as 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 a founder as a small business owner like the the things that we oftentimes you know have as ambition sometimes get thwarted by our own you know naivety right 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 right, <laughs> right? I, I get it and you know I think at that time I just I just I just was I never had money. I never had, I, I put it like this, I, I had money, but I never had ease, <laughs> right? right? I never had ease. Growing up in Bridgeport, you ain't never had ease. You right. were constantly looking over your shoulder. Right. You constantly trying to get a dollar because you ain't got one, right? And the, the the escape velocity you need to like get out of an environment like that is, is like getting off the earth. Like you really got to like power through. But lo- when you're powering like that, a lot, you're hurtling through space. You're not taking it in, into into mind all the things around you that you got to be, you know, conscious of, right? right. So I, I wasn't conscious of like spending and all that kind of stuff. And so I was just like, oh, I'm just gonna pursue money now. So I bought a company instead of like going back into tech, doing more tech. I bought a, uh, you know, a retail business uh, out of bankruptcy. Really failed miserably at that. I I couldn't turn it around. I spent the better part of a year trying to do that. And then ultimately put it back into bankruptcy and put my head down. It was tough, mm-hmm. real tough. You know, I had two kids at that point. Um, you know, my wife and I were, you know, building our legacy with the family and all that. And I was like, what am I going to do now? I got no money. I, people saw me had a success, this, this successful outcome. Right. And now I had this failure. What am I going to do now? It's 2011, 12. And I'm like, I'm just going to just pause, hit the pause button. Sometimes you got to do that. Right. And so I sit, I hit the pause button. I stayed home with my son for about a year. Um, and I just thought about what I wanted, how I wanted to affect the world going forward. And, you know, I landed on this idea around insurance and technology, right? Because I, I'd seen as a lawyer how it just worked really poorly for black people, or for mm-hmm. people generally. And so I said, well, what if we could solve that problem? So I spent the better part of a year putting that together. My father passed away that year. Uh, you know, it was a complicated relationship. He had just gotten out of prison. He did mm-hmm. 12 of the 20 that he got. Um, and then... You know, the the next year I had when I had the idea more firmed up, I'd raised the first like couple maybe, I don't know, hundred thousand dollars or so, right. and then I'm like, all right, I'm gonna get off the ground now, right? Because right. because again, you need crazy escape velocity even in a, in a startup, right, to get you know through the Earth's atmosphere, right, right, and the hundred thousand dollars ain't gonna get you there, no. right? Let <laughs> no, everything go perfect, right? It ain't gonna make it, and everything didn't go perfect, right? Mm-hmm. The month after I raised that money, you know, our daughter. You know, she was four years old, was struck with stage four cancer, right? Mm. I'm in Baltimore, right, right here, right? And, you know, it's 2014. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? You know what I mean? And I said, I'm going to spend my time loving on this little girl, right? Uh, investing my time into whatever she needs, right? We did a whole year of chemotherapy, radiation. Uh, it was a stage four tumor that had taken over her kidney, all that. Um, and building a great company. Mm-hmm. That hopefully will create you know positive wealth outcomes that can be translated into making her life, making our lives better, smoother, all that. Mm-hmm. And I did that. I grew fixed. You know the company that I ultimately created um, over the course of six years. I raised six and a half million dollars for that company. I grew it three hundred percent year over year. I had clients like Honeywell, uh, Coca Cola, um, 
T. Rowe Price. I mean, I could go NYPD. All thirty-seven thousand police officers have my apps running on their devices. Mm. Um, and think about that: my apps running on their devices when Eric Gardner was killed. Wow. Think about that, right? Because like I'm no different than Eric Gardner. He was an entrepreneur. Right. Right. But the reality is, like, black entrepreneurship sometimes is invisible. Right. Why do I dress the way I do? Like most most times, I got my chains out. All that. Right. Because mm-hmm. like I want them to see that like that I'm no different than what you see in Penn Lucy. I'm no different than what you see up the hill, down the hill, everywhere in Baltimore, right? Mm. Those are geniuses. Those are geniuses, right? But it doesn't always translate because the world doesn't accept us that way, right? right? And That's... so I think I think black entrepreneurship sometimes can be invisible, but I thought, you know, I think in t- 2020, I made it very visible in this city, very visible. My, I sold the company ultimately to uh, Assurant. It was a great deal. <laughs> uh, Assurance, the ten billion dollar acquirer. Right. Know, Alan Alan Cofield was the was the was the CEO. Then ten thousand employees. Um, you know, it was a four month five month transaction. All cash deal, mm. no holdbacks, no <laughs> escrows, right? <laughs> and you know, all my employees went over to Assurance. Uh, right. And you know, but the impact to that company was tremendous, right? Now Assurance is a hundred and fifty year old insurance company, right? They had, and their whole thing is that we're going to grow by acquiring other businesses. Right, yes, they did. But they never acquired a company led by a black person. That's interesting. Right? And and the impact was like $500 million of new revenue. Mm. The impact was like, oh, the stock price went from 90 bucks a share to 140 bucks a share. Mm. That's $3 billion of market cap. Mm. Right? So, like, what I'm trying to expose to corporate America, right, is that we miss opportunities to, to Baltimore. Right? To Baltimore. That we miss opportunities all day long, not only to do good, but to do well at the same time. Mm, y'all, y'all, you're preaching. This is all day. <laughs> but how do you see, we just got nominated as a tech hub, federal tech hub, or we are now. What do you see Baltimore going for now as a tech hub? Because that's a lot of money to be flowing in here. 100%. And there's a, I always tell people, there's the Jeff Cherries of the world who's out there. There's the other upstairs, all those different people. How are we going to make this work? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that this is where, you know, real experience matters, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you haven't been an experienced founder, entrepreneur, ecosystem builder, like truly experienced, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where like you've done it yourself in some way, right? And you have proximity to the people who are enacting the laws and policies that are going to impact us this way. Like you shouldn't be talking about this, gotcha. right? And, and so I think this is where we got to find those voices that are the knowledgeable voices that are going to be good guides for um, you know, underrepresented minorities, underrepresented founders, underrepresented small businesses that are out there that have no concept of how the federal tech hub designation is going to impact their lives. And so one of the things I'm doing uh, in, in partnership with Black Tech Saturdays, shout out to Black Tech Saturdays, um, started in Detroit, you know, great organization. And now we've brought it here to Baltimore. OK. Right. So we have our first Black Tech Saturdays tomorrow okay. uh, at the Four Seasons. OK. Uh, we're hosting about 300 people, mm. you know, 300 black people. Wow. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff. Right? We're going to be kicking it. We're going to have a DJ and have fun and have some good food, all that stuff. But, you know, part of the conversation is really how do we start to, you know, educate our community about the impact of things like the Federal Tech Hub designation? Because right. there's a lot of money that is going to flow. Right. But we all know that when these things, these institutional <laughs> things to happen, we don't ever get the benefit of them. We don't see that money. We don't see that money. Marijuana is a great example. Right? If we do, we get pennies on the dollar. It's not really like a lot we're getting. From Absolutely, that. you're right. Absolutely. Marijuana is a huge, huge yep. example. I don't know too many black-owned marijuana places, which is there's one, of, one in Maryland, one in one. Prince George's, Prince George's. 
Not, uh, maybe. I, I, yeah. There's one. I'm not sure. I'm surprised sure. you're not involved in that. No, nah, I'm surprised you're not in that thing. game. That's, that's, a, that's a good game to be a part of. Maybe I just don't understand the economics of it. I like to get into things that I, I, I know I can. I, I have a, I have an outsized advantage to win. Okay. Right. Okay. And I tell black people that too. If you got, if you have a chance to go, you know, do a thing over here or do a thing over here, if the thing that you know, you you can do is one that you you not only know that you can win, but you have an advantage mm-hmm. to win. You should play that game, right? And so, you know, a lot of what I do is is aligning the the situation in a way that leads to the outcomes that we need. Because black people, we don't have a lot of a lot of opportunity to take take risk, right? We come from environments where you you've got to you know make your one bet. And it's and it's got to work, right? And so that's that's facts. Yeah, that's we don't get yeah. second chances. We don't normally get second chances. We don't. We don't. So you got to reinvent that. You gotta you gotta create it yourself. And I I think that I'm 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 creating that for myself and for others in this city and beyond in places like Birmingham and Chicago and Detroit, Cleveland, other places around the country, Oakland, um, and and that's what it's about. And that's de- something definitely. I know I would love to get you on a panel discussion. Cause you got my my wheels spinning now about some stuff I got coming up. We'll talk offline. Um, let's talk a little bit about you're being a vegan a little bit. <laughs> Whew. A little bit. Tell us a little bit about that. Cause I feel yeah. like we might do need to do a part two of this. Hundred percent. But I just want to give people a little taste. Why are you a vegan? I know it's a little topic, but tell us. Yeah. About so it. I think what would be fun. You know, now we just like talking about it. Mm-hmm. I think what would be fun if we did like a little vegan. I know I've seen you do these like pub crawls or. I'll do food some crawls. Food and, crawl, I'll do some stuff. I don't know. I, you know, I try to say in the scene, but not in the scene. No, no, but you like, you'll, you'll like tour some of the food establishments. Yeah, I will. Right? I will. And like, I'd love to do one where you and I toured some of the vegan food establishments, the under, underground places. Say less. You know what I mean? So, we can figure that out. So, my journey into veganism really began with my daughter. Okay. Right? Before that, I was always healthy. You know, growing up school in New York, you ain't got no choice. Like, everyone's like, trying to tell you eating cow eating pork gonna kill you right mm-hmm. like, like 90% of the people at Syracuse black people at Syracuse from Brooklyn and they like halfway 5 percenters you know what mm-hmm. I, mean? so, I know I know and so, and so they telling you stuff like you know and at the same time a lot of those things were, were true right, right? and so I, I was always impressed impre- I was pretty impressionable as a kid and I was impressed by those things and I and at 19 I said okay I'm gonna make my mind up and I'm not gonna eat certain things I wanna be healthy. I want to optimize my right. health. Again, we come from environments where, you know, bullets, a lot of things could take you out, right? Mm-hmm. And and so like, you know, you don't so oftentimes you don't consider the the other things the that food. can take you out. Food, right? Every day, everyday stuff. Exactly. So I made the decision when I was 19 to give up all that stuff. So I gave up uh pork beef, uh, you know, basically meat when I was when I I still ate fish. Right. You know, and then so it's and cheese and all that stuff. I still ate those things. Um, up until my daughter got sick. And when my daughter got sick, I was like, oh, wow. It made me just look deeper into mm. all the things that cause cancers, right? And when I looked into it very deeply, I was like, oh, wow. A lot of it is controlled by like what we eat and all, you know, our environment, all those kinds of things. And these are things that you can control. Mm-hmm. And so I made the deliberate decision then to just become a vegan. Like, and I can't believe I gave up crabs in, in Maryland, in Baltimore. Yeah, which is crabs, which is bro. which is wild. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, is it hard yeah. for you to find places to get dinner, or do you oh, know, you're, or do you normally cook yourself? Yeah, you know, mostly? yeah. I, you know, I I usually get my stuff cooked myself or. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the only way, right? Because right. like Baltimore doesn't have like a, a plurality of like really good vegan no. restaurants. Now there's some good places where they have both things on the menu, like um, mm. uh, 
this was the time Taiwanese street food um something ikiben yeah right ikiben is amazing right mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dave uh, Steve Steve my guy like yeah Steve, Steve, yeah, yeah good guy man great entrepreneur uh, and like their menu is like fire right so I, I'll eat a lot of things off their menu but you can't eat that weekly no I mean, mm-hmm. five five hundred pounds right. No, and so you know a lot of things I wind up eating, man, are just like things that I I create myself. You know, I'll mm. have made for me or whatever, and then you know, and, and I rock like that. Um, but it you know winds up being a lot of beans, a lot of brown rice, a mm. lot of um, you know fruits and vegetables. Uh, you know, just things that I I you know non processed things, right? Because you know I I watch my my family. My grandmother died when she was fifty. My father died when he was fifty six. You know, um, it's you history. Know, yeah. Tell, yeah. Just telling you stuff. Yeah, exactly. Just telling you right in front of you. Exactly. But when I travel, man, there are some of the best restaurants, you know, vegan restaurants in the country, in LA. I believe it. Miami. I mean, just some great restaurants out there. Oh, you have a lot of those places are for thinking they have people who. They are. They're different. <laughs> yeah. They're just almost a different. It's a lot of different. It's a lot of different things. So, what I want to do is like, what do you want people to walk away from this interview from? Just what do you, just like, final thoughts? Like, what do you want people to walk away with and just. I have those because I mean you have you 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 gave you dropped a lot of jewels and gems this whole time, and I mean I'm probably going back and listen to this again because I was impressed by so many things that you said and just really just I knew I knew you I knew you were doing your thing, but certain things you hear in an interview you're like damn all right I gotta I like that but what do you want people to walk away with just saying you know because this is what the podcast started off with it started off about people who went through things the hard journey and they figured it out a way, and this is what the original take was because all my Syracuse friends a lot of guys who. Were the smartest people I knew, but couldn't get a job. That's right. They went through adversity, and this is this is what the podcast is originally was for. And it's warmed my heart to hear all this because this is what it's about. But what do you want? What do you want people to walk away with? One thing you want people to walk away with? I'll say two things. Okay. Be okay with your real story, and be okay with people misunderstanding you. Mm, okay. Okay. I'm okay with that. I think a lot of our problems comes from the fact that we just can't sit in silence. You know, being okay not being fully understood or loved or embraced or desired, right? Mm, okay. I think, I think that's a challenge for humanity and I think it's a challenge for, for, for black people sometimes, right? And I think we gotta be okay, like here's my authentic story that I'm gonna tell in every room where it's relevant, right? Or mm-hmm. where there's an opportunity for me to tell it, right? No matter what I'm wearing, no matter what I look like, no matter who's around, right? I don't, I don't switch it up, I don't switch it up, bro. Like this is the way I talk to everybody, this is the way I talk. When I'm in the room with, you know, <clears throat> You know, organizations like Bank of America, one of my biggest investors, right? Like, I, we, we have conversations like this. You know, when I was a, on the board of TEDCO, governor put me there, right? When I was on, on the pension transition committee, mm. right? By the, you know, Brooke Laramie put me there, right? I show up like this. I saw that, yeah, Brooke Laramie. Yep. I, show, I show up like this because I want them to embrace, you know, the all of me, not just the parts of me that, you know, they deem acceptable. They don't get to choose that. Right? So I, I will tell you, I have, so you're going to use the first time people will hear this. I do watch your style, and I watch a couple other couple brother blood brothers that are in the black texting style, and so that's where I wear my J's everywhere I go to these, <laughs> these functions. Cause I'm like, hold up, these brothers been doing it, yeah, for years. Okay, like let's yeah, let's yeah. do it, like let, let's yeah, do it. And yeah. so people are like, now it's like you didn't wear your Jordans tonight, exactly. And it's like part of your, exactly. it's like all right, this is what it is. But that's but exactly. I see y'all doing y'all thing. I love it, and Thank keep you. on doing what y'all doing. I really appreciate. It. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Your website, whatever you, wherever they can find you, and maybe they want to say, "Hey, we want to uh, 
have lunch with Mr. Coop, you know, yeah, or yeah. have a meeting, business meeting, or something like that. How can they reach out to you? Yeah, two my main ways are uh, my Instagram, which okay. is Luke Cooper underscore eighty one, uh, or uh, LinkedIn, um, and just find me on Luke Cooper on, on LinkedIn, Baltimore. You'll find me there, uh, and then my email address is Luke at No Mud No Magic dot com. All right, all right. So we're gonna do a real quick speed round. Kobe, LeBron, or Jordan? Kobe, the goat. The goat. Who's oh, the, the goat? goat? Oh, who's the goat? Who's the goat? Oh, Jordan, all day. All right, because you're a basketball head. You're, oh, yeah, sure. You're right. a basketball head. Okay, all right, that, all right. That, that black cat. Okay. That black cat, yeah. The best Super Bowl halftime performance you think that you saw? Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Come on, man. It's got to be like 50 Cent upside down. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. I, 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 that's my if, man, 50 right there. And yeah. if I were to listen to your, your head, listen, if you're the gem, what song motivates you before you go into that meeting? What song is like? Oh, Meek I'm Mill ready. all day, huh? Meek Mill all day. I love it. Like it's like three or four Meek Mill songs that I'm like I got on ro- heavy rotation when I'm about to go into something. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because he been through it, right? Meek Meek been through it. He was locked down, right? And like you, when you coming from that place of like, and it's the same place that we all come from. I wasn't in the in the in the penal system, right? Right. But like, you know, in the environments that I come from, like you you feel like you locked down, right? And so that your voice, your music your message is going to sound different and, and Meek provides that for me. I love that. You're off the, you're off the, you're off the hook. Folks, we did that. Thank we you did so that. much, we did that. Luke Cooper, for hanging out with us. Thank you so much. This is going to be one of the Black History shows. I can't excite it. We're going to try to figure out how we can do this round table for discussion get them on here too. People, love, peace, we're out. Never seen so many.